You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, welcome to the Human Rights Talks uh, podcast uh, and to our special edition on the war in Ukraine. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have uh, Irina uh, Madvyichin. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, she's a Ukrainian journalist currently uh, covering the war in Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, where are you at the moment? Are you in Kyiv? Uh, I'm currently in Lviv. Uh, okay. I just came back from Kyiv a few days ago. And how is the situation where you are? Uh, well, in Lviv, uh, things are pretty normal, uh, if you can say so, during the wartime. Um, People are trying to live their normal life. But of course, you see a lot of military and sometimes we have sirens. Um, so it's not like super easy, um, but it's much better than when you go east. Yeah. Um, I mean, my colleagues and I have been following you a lot on social media because you're, you're very present and you're a very useful source of information about what's happening. Um, and you've done a lot of reporting about how people cope in cities and in regions occupied by, by Russia. Um, how do people manage to basically have to live with so little um, under Russian occupation? How do you, who, who, how do you, they have little access to basic goods? Good. So what, what do you know about people who live in under Russian occupation? Well, of course, the situation uh, in the occupied territories is dire and uh, it's dire everywhere where Russians came. Um, because they don't care about civilians that much. They, they care about territories. So uh, if we talk about uh, either like newly re- liberated areas in Kharkiv region or in Kherson, um, the situation is pretty much the same uh, in terms of conditions in which people live um, and how they are treated, uh, because also there are a lot of interrogations. People are kidnapped, abused, uh, tortured, and killed. Uh, so of course, the situation is tense, even like on a on a mental uh, and physical level. But if we talk about like um, daily life, there is limited access. Uh, to drinking water, uh, if we talk about Mariupol, for example, or gas, like in the liberated towns in Kharkiv uh, region. Um, many people uh, survive due to volunteers who bring food and who some, uh, somehow manage to support civilians, even though they might face hardships themselves. Uh, and uh, yeah, through because of donations, uh, uh, some people who left the liberated territories, uh, they tried to help their uh, people that they lived with in the same city. So they donate money to some secret volunteers who would try to provide civilians with basic needs. And mm-hmm. uh, as I've seen in Kherson uh, region, for example, and in the city itself, everything is super expensive and it's expensive even to like people like me who lives in the city and uh, who has a job, but I can't imagine how how like pensioners or people who are left without any means of survival um, manage to buy this stuff. Like it's increased maybe four times or some goods increased like four times. So it's terrible. 
Yeah, and, and is there a possibility to bring more humanitarian aid into these regions? It's very difficult because, uh, as we know, I think everyone knows, uh, Russia has not provided any humanitarian mm. corridors. They are not willing um, to help civilians. So Ukrainians cannot go there, of course, and there are no international organizations who have access either. Uh, so it's... Um, Some of them survived due to um, goods brought from Russia. So even in the liberated territories in Kharkiv, we've seen that Ukrainian uh, soldiers who were greeted by civilians, mm -hmm. they were given like chocolates from Russia, which is <laughs> insane. But that's like these people, if they are starving or they have to live somehow, they have no, cha no, no chance. They, they buy Russian goods as well. But Many of them, like activists, partisans, like people who are trying to resist in any way, even living on the occupied territory, they boycott these goods. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's even harder. I, I can't imagine how, how they manage to do that. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things we want to talk about on this podcast is also different um, war crimes and crimes against humanity that, that the Russian troops are committing. And um, there was a recent report by Human Rights Watch about the filtration camps. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, about that and what, what's happening. Yeah, I think it's a very underreported topic because this is something that we've read in history books and which sounds super surreal right now that it's still happening. Uh, and we are having like a flashback from 1945 or Stalin deportations uh, of other Ukrainians to Siberia or Gulag, you know. Mm -hmm. um, right now, there are around a million Ukrainians deported to Russia. And uh, I don't remember exactly the number of children, but something like um, more, more than 5,000, I think. Uh, only registered but mm -hmm. there are many more who are not registered so it's terrible because these people are deported for a reason like for, for a reason meaning that they will be used brainwashed and um, instrumentalized by Russian propaganda and uh, we've seen example like I, we've heard examples from people in the liberated uh, territories when they were trying to leave Uh, the occupied territory, for example, I, just yesterday I heard an interview of an old woman uh, who was trying to take her two of her grandchildren out of the occupied territory, and Russian soldiers were trying to take them away. Mm. Uh, and she was uh, desperate, but she, somehow she managed, she, she gave, gave them cigarettes and some water, something else, and tried to convince them not to take them away. But, but there were many, many cases when Russians did take children away from their parents. And this is just like, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but what happens to these children after? Who takes care of them? Uh, what will happen to them? We don't know. And there's no way to control this process in Russia because human rights organizations are almost non-existent uh, there anymore. International experts are not there, or maybe they are, but we don't see it. So it's, um, it's hard to say, but the consequences of this will be very, very bad for Ukraine and for these children personally and for their parents, they are already bad. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's a tra tragedy for for families like this. Yeah, it's a system of, of forced assimilation that we've seen in, in other wars as well. And and do you know in schools under Russian territory, do you know if if, if children what children are being taught? Uh, yeah, so it, it's the same policy as it has been before um, in the Donbass, in the occupied parts of Donbass and in Crimea, uh, which, uh, which Russia has been conducting this policy since uh, the very early stage of occupation. Uh, their education is um, total propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, in, in, it's an, uh, like... Um, it, it's uh, spreading hatred uh, against Ukrainians, uh, demonizing the West, demonizing Ukrainians, everything Western. And uh, we see some of these people already fighting against Ukraine uh, on the Russian side, mm -hmm. because, of course, many of them are for, uh, mobilized by force, but um, many of such uh, how they call them separatist fighters even though i don't like this term mm -hmm. uh they uh they are really brainwashed and they hate ukraine yeah. and uh, some of them are super young that means that they grew up uh, in the atmosphere uh, of hatred when russia occupied uh, their uh, land mm -hmm. uh, and these, these children don't have a choice um some of them left, those who couldn't stand it and who understood at least something or had families and could uh, move uh, to the to the free territory. Uh, they moved and they got Ukrainian education, but many of them are trapped due to their parents who don't want to leave. And uh, in, in the end, we, we get some people like our own compatriots who mm. ate us to the bones and uh, they are ready to kill Mm -hmm. And uh, th this education is more like militarization of children. Mm -hmm. I yeah. wrote an article a few years ago about how Russia is militarizing children in the Donbass and Crimea and Russia itself. And they have numerous military camps, uh, like uh, training camps to militarize kids. Uh, they have all kinds of organizations which are promoting this uh, extreme patriotism. And it's ridiculous because they call us Nazis, but if you check all these organizations and what they are doing, this is like real Nazis, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, the militarization of children is something that we saw, you know, in the 1930s under, you know, in Nazi Germany. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I know you want to, with one of your, of, your, of your colleagues, Joanna, I think you reported the story of um, families of the, um, the defenders of Azovstal. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about what you heard from these families and, and what happened to the prisoners? Yes, the prisoners, um, the Azovstal defenders and the prisoners of war is like also an underreported topic right now because um, there are other issues to pay attention to, but this problem hasn't disappeared and with each day it's getting worse for, mm -hmm. for these prisoners because they are held in uh, terrible conditions. Um, what we've heard from their families the, who contacted them from time to time because these soldiers have some access, uh, like phone access sometimes, and they can call to their wives and uh, children and things like this. So they say that 
there are no international organizations there, so nobody controls it, but they have no drinking water. They have no uh, decent food. Uh, they drink technical water from all kinds of sinks. Uh, they don't have a place to go to bathroom. Um, many, like there are too many people in one room. I've read something like about women health in Olanivka that uh, there was one room for like 15 people and there were almost 50 people there. So we can imagine what, what's happening there and to their health and to their well-being. And we've seen some pictures that were leaked uh, from uh, Donbass, the occupied Donbass, and these soldiers look uh, terrible. They mm. they starved, like they they mm. looked like a strong and mus muscular uh, man, but now they look like they're in the in the last stages of their life, you know. Mm. So and then that's why these families of prisoners of war they keep uh, posting on social media every day and this these uh, tweets and messages, they just break my heart because we don't talk about it that much because we are preoccupied with other issues. But uh, for them, it's like a daily a daily torture. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you don't know, like if you get news once in a while, you, you, your, your uh, ma imagination creates the pictures, you know, and, uh, and they are just like in psychological terror mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. living like this. So, yeah, and um, I've heard that like they eat rotten food, um, that there's no medical, uh, medical supply, like they don't get any treatment, maybe some, maybe those who are wounded get some like basic treatment, but nothing nothing uh, particular to help them uh, recover you know mm -hmm. and uh, one of the soldiers to whom uh, to, to whose wife I talked and with whom I kept contact when he was at Azovstal he told his wife that he hasn't brushed uh, hadn't brushed his teeth uh, since months ago mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah it's like there's so much happening that sometimes we speak about these events for like a week and then they fall off the headlines and it's good to it's good that you continue to pay, pay attention to this and one of the things I also want to know from you it's it's how do you work as a journalist at the moment because I know the situation is dangerous um how do you how do you tell the stories of the people you meet but you as a journalist how do you work um every day well, uh, I don't go to dangerous places, if you can say so. Um, I, I'm mostly reporting from uh, Lviv and Kiev right now. Uh, at the early stages of war, I was traveling more to Odessa, to Mykolaiv, uh, around Kiev. I went to Chernihiv uh, region re recently, uh, just last week. I made a report from, we video report from there. It's still dangerous because there's mm -hmm. a threat from Belarus. But for us, since there are no fighting, we consider it as more or less safe zone, which is kind of um, not true. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not, not going to Kharkiv uh, for now. Uh, I think um, it took me a while to recover from everything because um, I've been reporting even before the war very intensely. And uh, when the war started, I worked nonstop, may maybe as many other journalists, but I uh, was exhausted. Like in mm -hmm. June, I had to take a 
break and um i felt like i was at the edge you know and i had some kind of nervous break breakdown so mm -hmm. it's important to take care uh, to take care of ourselves because uh, even if you were the most professional person i don't know the uh, most professional human rights defender or journalist your psychic is not mm -hmm. ready for this amount of tragedy and this scale of horror that we mm -hmm. see daily and of course uh, you have to find some kind of we, we call it war war and life balance mm -hmm. <laughs> not work and life but yeah. war and life you know so yeah for now i'm um, i'm traveling between lviv and kiev I don't know. I would I would really like to go to Kharkiv region, and maybe when I find uh, more resource uh, in myself, I I will go to the liberated territories because my colleagues already asked me if I want to. So yeah. How um I mean I think you one of the things that I've seen is you also describe yourself as a storyteller. Kind of it's how do you tell how do you find the right individuals to make sure that we hear and understand the 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 dire situation that Ukrainians face? How do you yeah, mm -hmm. write about these people? Well, now it's uh, not very difficult because there are stories everywhere you go. And uh, last week, as I've said, I went to Chernihiv Oblast. It was kind of random because uh, my friends from France who are also reporters came to Ukraine and they wanted to go to, to the region. And it was just like, one day before and I didn't have any plan and I said okay let's just go there like let's I, I picked one village just mm -hmm. check the list of the most affected villages and we went there and there were just people sitting on a like a one woman sitting on a bench and we talked to her and she started to tell us like all these terrible stories like from Bucha, Irpin, the most famous infamous uh, places now uh, in the media but these stories like literally in every village in Chernihiv and uh, she told us about how she woke up because Russian soldiers were in her yard and then she took us home to show where where, where they were staying and uh, how they were putting weapons in front of civilian houses. Uh, she showed us neighbors houses which were completely destroyed and then she she like and these civilians they are used to it you know like mm -hmm. it's terrible but they get used to this bad reality and she was like oh but uh, we can maybe I can show you the bomb church or, or the farm and I said well if there's anyone there you can show us and uh, we were walking towards the church and on the street we saw her friend who worked in her yard and she and I asked who is this uh, woman and she said she works at the farm and uh, I asked about the farm and it turns out that the farm is completely destroyed and uh, this woman was there when uh, the occupation started so Russian troops came in when uh, and started to shell and look for Ukrainian army so she was in the farm, like lying on the floor for eight hours uh, under bullets and half of her cows were killed, like something like 60 cows were killed. So, and uh, yeah, it's just like, you see the stories everywhere. And um, and every Ukrainian right now has, uh, has like a whole, uh, uh, whole story for a Hollywood movie, you know, so 
it's not very difficult. Before the war, uh, I was working as a video producer and I had like a big project making videos about how Ukrainians change, uh, change their country like in a good way and help democratization and development of in different spheres. So that was more challenging because you had to look for these people. And right now you just go on the street and you can ask a person and maybe this person has some, the most craziest story that you've ever heard. Have you found that, I mean, you're, you're very present on social media. Have you found that social media is a good way to communicate with people outside Ukraine as well to tell them about what's happening? Yeah, the, that's exactly the reason why I'm spending so much time on Twitter. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't sacrifice uh, half yeah, of my time sure. on that. Sure. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of energy and um, uh, a lot of uh, physical health probably too. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, that's uh, that's very important to reach out to, to Western audiences and and to see how they react and to feel um, what's happening in uh, the outside world, you know, how they mm. react, how they uh, perceive these events and whether we can expect more help. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, sometimes I have this inner dilemma. Maybe I even thought about like joining some armed forces mm -hmm. or you know, as a paramedic, or even though I don't have any kind of background like this, but every every Ukrainian at some point questions himself whether he's doing some the most useful thing he or she can in this situation, and and each time like I think about it, then I think, but who would be telling like mm -hmm. to, all this to the world? Exactly. And right now there are quite a lot of Ukrainians who uh, who are present on social media and who write in different languages. Mm -hmm. which is very good because I haven't seen it maybe even not not even at the beginning of war but step by step like a lot of Ukrainians understood that they should uh, use their knowledge and spread the word um, but I think it's still it's still very needed to talk to audiences in the west and I still see a lot of misinterpretations a lot of misunderstanding in certain issues and Russian propaganda works pretty well because right now it's it's infiltrated in in uh, many western media who are like core like who are um undercover you know pro mm -hmm. pro russian or openly pro russian and they spread uh, the kremlin's agenda which, which is weird because this agenda is totally anti western and anti democratic Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I know you spend a lot of time uh, debunking Russian propaganda. How, how much do you think it reflects what Russian people also think? Do you, you know, in... I don't have any data uh, and also any polls we see from Russia are not representative because there's like not, not no real polls. Um, but And people are afraid to speak. But um, I think it's maybe, I think it's more than half mm -hmm. people believe that it's just like if it was less we wouldn't see this bizarre support and silence you know mm -hmm. and for me like being silent is also kind of support oh, yeah. Yeah. supporting the regime and what they are doing i can't imagine like 
Ukraine or other country uh, invading someone, killing civilians en masse, and um, that our people or some people in the West would be just like sitting, enjoying their life, you know? Mm -hmm. There are no protests and many of them justified with, uh, with uh, like uh, tyranny that it's impossible to go out because you would be packed and jailed for nothing. But I don't think it's completely true. And I don't think that they should underestimate their power so much, but that's the way they, uh, they are taught. Mm -hmm. And that's the way they have lived for hundreds of years. So they don't know what's the democratic uh, democratic uh, tradition, uh, and I can't like I can understand that. So I think Ukrainians don't expect a change in the Russian society mm -hmm. anymore. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of people support that, and that's very sad. Uh, it's sometimes it's surreal how how uh, people can be brainwashed to such an extent that literally they break closest family ties because mm -hmm. many Ukrainians have had mothers, brothers, their closest uh, family in Russia. And when the war started, uh, these families like were completely um, ignorant or completely in denial, you know, mm -hmm. and they just couldn't talk to them because like if a mother says that you are being liberated from that or and or you are nazi or you are liberating from or being liberated from the nazism then and you are sitting in a bomb shelter and your city is bombed like how can you continue talking to to your parents yeah absolutely it's a big personal tragedy too for many mm -hmm. people right but if it breaks families and it's 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 horrible for sure um i mean i'm, I'm glad you're you're decided to stay a journalist because we we need your stories. I mean, we still here. In, I mean, I'm, I'm in Canada, here in, in Quebec, we have one journalist who's on the ground, and she, she used to be a Russia correspondent, but they closed. Uh, they had to close their office yeah. in in Moscow because they were thrown out of the country, and so now she's reporting from from Ukraine. But you know, we don't hear. In the first few months of the war, we Ukraine was on top of the headlines. You know, and now it's like not so much. So it's important that we still hear from from you. Um, perhaps one last question. Besides like sanctions and, and more weapons, which in the last few days, weapons have proven from the West have proven extremely useful. You've made, I mean, Ukraine has made considerable advances. What else should foreign leaders and, and perhaps parliamentarians do to help Ukrainians in terms of, I don't know, justice, humanitarian aid? What do you wish to see? Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, well, the most important is uh, to provide weapons. And it, like, I don't understand why it takes so long for Western leaders to understand that Ukraine is capable to fight. Maybe mm -hmm. now they will send it faster, but uh, I, we are always um, having this question in mind and we're always wondering how many how many lives could have been saved if if this weapons was sent earlier, you know, mm -hmm. all this, uh, all these massive uh, killings could have been prevented. Yeah, and it's just crazy to think about. But um, uh, uh, regarding other uh, other things that could uh, could be useful, 
Well, I would say immediate, immediate attention and people talking about uh, what's happening in Ukraine is also important. Even like, even any person who's not a journalist or uh, or reporter can write about Ukraine and would help because they are spreading the truth mm -hmm. and it would counter uh, the pro-Kremlin's uh, narratives, which are literally deadly as we've seen uh, through the past few months. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as you mentioned, justice. I think that international support for investigating war crimes um, committed by Russia in Ukraine uh, would be crucial because the number of war crimes committed in Ukraine is so big that, uh, as Ukrainian human rights defenders said, it would be impossible to investigate. Uh, solely by um, the efforts of Ukrainian uh, prosecutors and investigators. Uh, mm -hmm. So we surely need international support in that. And, and of course, there are internal judiciary issues, like legal issues. We have to change our criminal code for that uh, to allow like international investigating uh, investigations being included in the Ukrainian system. But I think cooperation in that uh, area is key because mm -hmm. all the perpetrators have to be punished and of course it's impossible to punish all of them but the key figures who would be tried have to to be held accountable absolutely thank you Irina for this important conversation I'm really glad you were able to join us thank you so much for having me